Welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. We're here to talk to people about the causes that they care about and the effect that it has on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Dr. Ian Moreau is someone I could talk to for hours about climate change. He's a uniquely equipped expert in the field with decades of education, research, and even firsthand experience in almost all aspects of the impending climate catastrophe. He's the executive director of the Prairie Climate Center at the University of Winnipeg, a filmmaker, an activist, an environmental and social scientist. He holds a BSc in environmental science, a PhD in geography, and studied as a postdoctoral fellow in ethnoecology. What I'm saying is he knows his stuff. The consumption culture that goes along with the modern industrial initiative and technology that supports it is really at the center of the climate crisis and and our existential crisis as human beings. We don't really know which direction we're going anymore in a sense. We're just going forward with this thing called progress and we don't understand the definition of it. I sat down with Ian to talk about climate change, the role technology and media has to play, and trying to inspire a fundamental shift in the way we approach our relationship with the land. Because I have kids, because you have kids, and because they'll likely have kids, we have to figure out how to live in a better relationship with the earth and each other. Dr. Ian Morell, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, joining us on the Because and Effect podcast. Excited to talk to you. Happy to be here. You've got a long list of accolades and, and titles and accomplishments. Um, so maybe just give me a bit of context. How did you sort of uh, get to the position that you're in right now? And why why is climate change and, and uh, focusing on that a big part of, of what you do on a day-to-day basis? Well, first of all, I'm a Winnipegger. Uh, I've spent most of my life here. I was born in Thompson, lived in Verdon. Uh, my consciousness kind of comes into being with the pump jacks of South uh, Western Manitoba kind of in the prairie sunset. So I can kind of really remember waking up as a human being to that oil landscape and that agricultural matrix that it was embedded in and really kind of took that seriously. It kind of carried with me for most of my life. Uh, my mother's side of the family are farmers. And at a very young age, I said at the end of a summer, mom, dad, I want to go to grandma and grandpa's and be on the farm all summer. And they said, well, can we buy you a ticket tomorrow? You know, they were like, sure, we got three boys in the family. And so I took off for a couple of summers and spent a lot of time with my grandparents on the farm. And the farm was interesting. It was in Alberta and it was on the borderline between uh, the actual farm that my grandparents owned and Paul Band First Nation. And so uh, another kind of early part of my my existence was kind of straddling these two worlds of Indigenous knowledge uh, being out at powwows, my grandfather was an active fisher, hunter, uh, and trapper with the community, with the Paul Band. And I kind of learned from him how to kind of live in these two worlds in a sense and how to be respectful uh, of these different ways of knowing. And that always kind of stuck with me. And I graduated from high school and my grandfather had passed away. He was a big influence on my life. And I took the small inheritance that he gave me. I bought a bicycle and I rode my bike down to California. And I went by myself and that was a really transformational kind of moment for me where I was able to kind of connect with the natural world in a way that I had never experienced before. And I would spent a lot of time outside as a kid, but that in particular and that kind of solemn ride by myself kind of going into the redwoods, you know, along the Pacific coast 
and I got all the way down to San Francisco and I met a number of people and I just realized, you know what, this is what I want to devote my life to. I want to work on the environment. I want to be, you know, contributing to solutions. And I came back and I got myself enrolled in the environmental science program at the University of Manitoba and essentially just followed that trajectory all the way through accidentally to a PhD. I didn't necessarily mean to to kind of study um, that intensely, but in my um my PhD work, I kind of brought all these different pieces together and I studied farmer knowledge and biotechnology on the Canadian prairies and uh-huh. lawsuits were flying around, GMOs were flying around, genes were getting into things that they weren't supposed to be getting into. And I felt that work really honored the relationship that I had with my father or my grandfather relationship I had with these kind of farm landscapes. And it's kind of a long winded story, but you asked me a big no. question and, and the opportunity to kind of be working in this kind of agricultural context on these big issues related to the future of agriculture, the future of technology, intellectual property, ownership. I had this kind of amazing opportunity um, to travel up to the Canadian Arctic at the end of my undergrad. And so I kind of basically taken this Indigenous Studies and Environment and Geography course and lived in a place called Pangnertung which is up in the eastern arctic way up at the arctic circle kind of midway up baffin island and i got to learn from inuit i got to really embed myself in this landscape and if you can imagine kind of some of the biggest picturesque mountains in the world covered in kind of glaciers and you know a beautiful fjord ecosystem with seals and whales and inuit out there and i was just kind of in love i was like unbelievably kind of enamored by that landscape got to experience that but when i came down and got into my graduate work uh the folks in the indigenous studies program at the u of m said you know what ian you're connected to this place you understand this place you've got the environmental background would you come up and and be a teacher on this program and so while i was simultaneously doing my phd on agriculture in the south i was living my summers in the north with the inuit and i was teaching environmental science and kind of cultural ecology and learning from Inuit and the relationship with traditional knowledge and science. And I was literally watching the Arctic melt with my own eyes. And so that was like 2001 kind of to the the kind of 2010s. And so I was up there for what was the hottest decade on record at that point. And I literally watched glaciers disappear before my very eyes. And when you're talking to elders who are 80 years old, they're telling you the changes that they've seen. And it's just really kind of unbelievable. And so I was in a tent uh, on the land uh, with this elder, Joanna C. Kopik. And through translation, my nuktitudes, as I say, good enough to get myself into trouble. But when talking with a, a kind of esteemed elder with the old nuktitude, it was through translation. And he basically said to me, like, Ian, you know a lot about our people. You know a lot about our culture. You know a lot about our environment. And it would be really important if you could take that knowledge and try and do something. Because you're in the South. You're in a position of influence. You speak English. You know, you're closer to the centers of power. And he'd said it in a very respectful way, but I also kind of interpreted that in a sense to not be a climate change tourist. Don't just come up here and watch it melt. And so when I finished my PhD, I pivoted and I basically got into a postdoc where I uh, studied Inuit knowledge and climate change. And that's where uh, my abilities, my kind of skills, my, my kind of training really shifted to climate change as a focus. That might be the best answer I've ever had in any interview ever. So thank you. That's very robust. There's a lot to unpack there. The first thing I want to talk about is the connection to nature and how important that is for everyone, but especially children. How 
formative do you think that was when you're able to work with the land at a very young age and understand the importance and the sort of symbiosis of us versus the land and getting that at a very young age as opposed to kind of learning it in adulthood when it's kind of you're already set in your ways? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm 40, right? And so they they talk about, you know, the millennials and then they talk about the Gen Xers and I'm kind of in this generation in between and apparently that's the generation that went from analog to digital and that we literally kind of, you know, had record players in our houses and, you know, I can remember when you had to rent a VHS, you know, to get a movie in your house. And, you know, now I think about I've got three kids and you think about Netflix and the accessibility to digital media and iPads and the way in which that frames the lives of our children. And, you know, obviously access to information is important, but unrestricted kind of digital, you know, technology in our lives does permutate the way in which we see the world. Well, just the instant gratification, right? There's no there's no delayed. Yeah response to anything anymore. all of it right yeah. and so i i'm very cognizant as a parent and just thinking about those differences which you know in, in in 30 years 35 years you know it's amazing how much has changed and um for me that connection to nature played out very well right i really did kind of cognitively form a relationship with the natural world that has carried me through to this conversation and, you know, I, I, I work a lot with David Suzuki. We might talk about that. But, you know, one of the things that he says is, you know, through his foundation, the nature challenge, you know, getting people outside for, you know, 30 minutes a day, you know, and that seems like a big ask, which is kind of crazy. Um, but I'll often say to my kids, what does David Suzuki say? And they say, get outside and they'll run outside. And so my kids have a sense of, you know, the balance around it. But even someone like myself has trouble striking that balance sometimes, you know, and, and, and so I think we just have to be cognizant of the presence of these technologies. We have to understand that that connection to nature is something that carries through a whole lifetime and is intergenerational. And if we can establish that young you know, Walden and his pond, right? You know, being outside, thinking about the kind of ecosystems that we live in, being part of them, you know, that is transformational and it is something that we need to make sure that we embed in the DNA of our kids really young. There's something different about touching it and feeling it and interacting with it rather than reading about it in a book or seeing it on the internet too, right? Like how important is it to get out there and, and feel the land and experience it? One have a relationship, right? And so again, I have these relationships with all these places from the farm to the Arctic, you know, to the prairie landscape. And, you know, that does enrich me. And when I kind of fall down or I question things, you know, you can go back to those landscapes in your mind or you can physically go back to those landscapes and they are they are sources of richness. They are sources of energy or they are sources of knowledge in a real way. And that understanding actually has a huge impact on the way I do my work now, uh, because as we kind of interact with people around climate change, when we talk to traditional knowledge holders, when we interact with farmers or scientists, even for that matter, we want to get people in the landscapes in which they're from, in the landscapes in which their knowledge is generated, in the landscapes in which they're comfortable. And that, I think, is, is a really important uh, piece in the way in we understand knowledge. When we extract knowledge, when we kind of, you know, go in or we get somebody in a boardroom or we, you know, we have these conversations out of context, they're very different kinds of conversations. And, you know, as a media person yourself, you know this. And, and so um, being embedded in place, um, you know, I'm technically trained as a geographer. I did my PhD in geography. And so place is really important. And, and I take that really seriously in all the work that I do. Do you think that the sort of pendulum of 
of the of understanding the importance of being in nature has swung a little too far in one direction and we didn't really we didn't really realize what we were missing and now people are starting to hopefully understand its importance and getting back outside and, and understanding that connection that you can be invigorated and re-energized by going outside it's not something that takes from you but it actually gives well like there's reams of research about this you know the talk about the japanese practice of forest bathing like literally getting outside in the forest and like our molecules reorientate themselves like you know our brain chemistry changes we we literally kind of become healthier in a very like biophysical way and in in mental health when we're engaged in these ecosystems these are like actual scientific facts so how did we diverge like how did we go from an era and an understanding of the importance of it like our, our grandparents worked in the fields and understood it but we just kind of went off on the wrong path how did that happen and how do we get ourselves back to the path of understanding the importance of being in nature for mental and physical health? Well, I, I'm not sure I have the answers yeah. to that question, but, you know, again, this bifurcation of the analog to the digital, that, mm. that kind of sweeping way in which digital technologies have come into our lives, I think is undeniable. It's had an impact. And when we look at, you know, I, I, I've got young kids, as I mentioned, I go to the playgrounds and there's all these parents on their smartphones looking at their phones and their kids are playing by themselves on the play structures. And I actively resist that. And, and I say resist because these are addictive technologies. They're meant to change your brain serotonin. They're meant to kind of pull you in. They're meant to keep you there. We are in literally this attention economy where people are vying for your attention and it's carnal. Like it's a really dangerous space because we can passively get on our phones and we can kind of, oh yeah, I'm scrolling around. And then we realize, whoa, that was two and a half hours later. And you don't even realize that that has happened. And that is explicitly a design feature of these technologies. And so I think we've kind of been asleep at the wheel in a real sense. We didn't really quite realize what was going on, you know, akin to smoking, right? You know, I remember, you know, being in health classes in elementary school where we were watching videos with doctors smoking cigarettes saying, you know, live healthy lives. And, and, and people didn't quite realize the impact of smoking on our health. Well, I don't think we've quite caught up with the impact of digital technologies on our lives. And we have to resist. And we really have to kind of say, wait a second, let's get this in check because our kids' health is going to be impacted by this. When we when they see us on these technologies, they're just going to replicate that. When they, you know, start to kind of get pulled into them themselves, they're going to have trouble getting out of them, especially, especially at a young age. Well, yeah, their yeah. brains start to get hardwired into these technologies. And so we have to be just very cognizant of that. And, and I think, you know, it's never too late, but the earlier we start, the better. The media and social media and technology doesn't have to be this doom and gloom negative thing. Obviously, you're a filmmaker and we can use it for good. So how do you kind of walk that line of being in this world, of being a filmmaker, of using these mediums to, to further positive messages, but also being aware that it's also being used to distract and to take away and to, in some cases, flat out discredit and have misinformation campaigns about the things that you're trying to, to educate people on. It's kind of ironic, all the things that I've just said, right. um, given the work that I do. But, uh, you know, I, I, I was, again, doing that kind of PhD work in, in kind of biotechnology. And that was in the kind of early 2000s. And you could buy a camera, a hard drive and a computer and connect them all together with cords for, you know, $5,000. And it was literally the birth of a new way of doing business, a new way of communicating. 
and the democ- on a massive scale on a massive too. scale the democratization of that kind of ability to create and this was pre Facebook pre YouTube you know we didn't have these platforms to just kind of broadcast ourselves continuously you had to kind of work at it but it was accessible at that stage and I was looking around at the kind of available ways to communicate as a student doing my PhD and I said well why wouldn't I become a filmmaker you know this is new to everybody so why can't I just start doing this and so I have literally zero formal training in any sort of media production at all um, and I, I literally mean that I've never taken a course in my life and I, I started to teach myself and I started to kind of interact and you know mentor with people who had skills and started to kind of build media content and in my PhD I made a film with a, a couple of guys Jim Saunders and Steph McLaughlin my PhD advisor called Seeds of Change and that film was a very influential film about biotechnology its impact on farm communities its impact on the environment and I continue to kind of publish peer-reviewed papers like an academic should. Um, but I also, at a very early age in my career, realized, whoa, I will likely never have the kind of impact with my kind of scholarly papers that I have with my digital media production. And so I've kind of lived in two worlds in that way and, you know, continued to plug away at the, the scholarly papers. But it, can, it really kind of ramped up my digital media production. And that's that served me very well because the world around us has changed to really privilege that kind of communication and so I'm, I'm I'm pretty good at it we've got a video lab at the University of Winnipeg and a lot of my research has focused on collecting people's stories hearing from people co-developing media with communities that don't necessarily have the skills or the abilities or the resources to to kind of create that kind of messaging through those kinds of platforms and those kinds of tools and so I do a lot of participatory video uh, we use the medium to engage communities in their knowledge in their place about the issues that they care about um, and we've developed I, I made lots of different kind of feature films short films and I just think that you know if you craft the message carefully if you are cognizant of the strengths and weaknesses of the technology if you are you know trying to use them for the forces of good uh, I think that there's a real opportunity there to kind of evoke change to pull people in to kind of create a lens that people can look through that might be slightly different than what's on the kind of standard broadcast media and so you know for years I've been getting research money in media money in to develop projects that would never get made otherwise and so you know, we can kind of pick up, for example, after my my PhD, I did the postdoc, I was working with Inuit, and I literally had the kind of good fortune of meeting Zacharias Kunuk, uh, who's the great Inuk filmmaker that made Atanadu at the Fast Runner. And again, I said earlier, I know enough Inuktitut to get myself into trouble. I started kind of chatting with Zach in Inuktitut. He's looking at me like, who is this Kadlunak or Southerner or white guy, you know, that, that's speaking Inuktitut. You know, he's really interested about this stuff. He's passionate about this stuff. We kind of built a relationship. We laughed a lot. Uh, and I said, Zach, like, I really want to do something around kind of Inuit knowledge and climate change relationships that I have. And him and I set out to build the world's first Inuktitut language film on climate change called Kepehrengeyuk Inuit Knowledge and, and Climate Change. And so that was kind of a big jump into digital media production, working with literally one of the most famous filmmakers on the planet, going into these communities across the Arctic. Interview, Zach interviewed them in Inuktitut. 
and we assembled this this larger film about the kind of impact of climate change across the Arctic. And people had never seen anything like that before. They had never been brought into the Inuit world, into the Inuit mind, into the Inuit vocabulary to see the real changes that Inuit were observing with their own eyes in the context of their own lives. And again, that kind of stuff doesn't get made very easily. It was a bridging of academic money, media money, these kind of interesting partnerships. And that's an example of the important, rich kind of media that can get made when you're steering the technology in a way that, that might be in the service of humanity. That's an important perspective in this discussion that I think hasn't been at the forefront, par- partially because of maybe the language barriers or what, or the technological barriers. How important is it to include and talk about and celebrate and embrace the Indigenous perspective when it comes to climate change? Well, again, I've been doing it for a while. I've been listening. So I, I spent literally that decade up there as a teacher in the Pangertung listening. And so, you know, a lot of people are hot to trot. They want to get in. They, you know, working with indigenous communities is cool. You got to do it. It's reconciliation. Let's get Let's in there. Let's start filming. Let's, Let's go. Say, Let's and, go. Let's and, go. And, and I would caution everybody against doing anything like that. Um, there's academic papers by a woman named Heather Castleton that are literally the title of this paper is called I Spent My First Year Drinking Tea. And building a relationship is the most important thing. And and I didn't spend my first year drinking tea. I spent literally a decade drinking tea, just kind of listening. And and it was a weird situation. Not everybody would get that kind of breathing room, right? It was a very different kind of context that allowed me to be there to build those relationships. And so uh, when Zach and I started making this film and we released this film, people were like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? How does he have that kind of rapport with these people? And, and, and and these people, even as a weird way to say it, like mm-hmm. in, I, I've been adopted into Inuit families. I've I've spent the time there to kind of be located and and kind of operate in this third space. I'm not from there. I'm not a visitor to there, but I'm something different. And and so uh, I I I was trained in a sense by the Inuit to kind of see through their eyes. Um, and that's not. Uh, a kind of colonial co-option that's I'm, I want to be very careful there um, that that was an invitation in mm-hmm. I got invited in to kind of look through that worldview um, and you know I can do it partially again language is really really important because the the language is locked in the kind of linguistic vocabulary of the culture and it's different where you go and so you know, people like Wade Davis will talk about this. They'll talk about the ethnosphere. They'll talk about how, you know, we're losing biodiversity at a rapidly astonishing rate, catastrophic rate. But if you look at cultural diversity and language, we're actually losing languages around the world faster than we're losing species. And this is actually cause for concern because the, the kind of constellation of the human fabric of what it is to be human is embedded in all these kind of languages. And as we lose language, we, in a very real way, lose knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these diverse knowledges that we have, these diverse languages, all of these indigenous communities, we have such a richness of first peoples in this country. And for me, um, getting that exposure at a young age, you know, on the farm, starting to learn about that, building that momentum, getting up into the Arctic, learning about this, you know, I, I never took that for granted. Mm-hmm. I always really embraced and celebrated and wanted to contribute in whatever way I was invited to do so, mm-hmm. not assuming that you have the right to go in there with a camera, not assuming that your privilege is going to help people. In fact, it can harm people. And so just being very careful, uh, being humble, listening, 
Um, those are all kind of things that I think are good kind of guideposts when you're doing this work. And so the real thing though is, you know, to the heart of your question is that, you know, I'm trained as a, you know, Western scientist. And that is a powerful way of knowing. You look at everything around us in this room from the mics to the structure of the 13th boardroom floor that we're on. You know, this is all kind of the Western scientific mind, science, engineering, technology. It's allowed us to kind of live in the modern world the way that we do. But that has often gotten us, you know, some of these riches, some of these kind of amazing amenities and, 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 and comforts in life. But it's also very damaging. It's also really screwed things up. When you look at climate change, when you look at, you know, the way in which we're jetting all over the countries, you know, of the world, when we're kind of, you know, creating these cars, single occupancy, all of this stuff, the consumption culture that goes along with the modern industrial initiative and technology that supports it is really at the center of the climate crisis and, and our existential crisis as human beings. We don't really know which direction we're going anymore in a sense. We're just going forward with this thing called progress and we don't understand the definition of it build it up build it higher yeah. build it bigger yeah. and and these are real like serious challenges for ecosystems for human communities for the human enterprise for the planetary enterprise and so when i think about the richness of indigenous communities and the kind of centering that their knowledge has uh i i that that to me is it's 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 something that can help literally guide all of these other kind of technologies and sciences if indigenous worldviews you know, centered on relationships, centered on, you know, the importance of community, centered on the importance of a healthy relationship with the land, you know, and these sound like romantic ideals, but they're not. When you talk to these elders, when you get into the kind of details that we often engage with when we're working in partnership with communities, these are real things that people are talking about and real strategies that people have to kind of live in this kind of uh, way. And, you know, we take that quite seriously in terms of that being a, 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 guide, a guiding force for how we can kind of look at the world and interact with the world. And for me, if you can bring these worlds together, you know, this coupling of kind of indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge, that to me is something I've always been really interested in, is how you kind of see the best of both and try and build a society that really truly honors uh, the the richness of, of these different ways of knowing and in a way that can bridge where appropriate but also ride alongside each other where bridging is not appropriate because again you get into these issues of kind of co-option and 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 colonialization and so we have to be careful you know it's not always okay to bridge and not everything can always mm -hmm. be kind of married together but but when you can find that connection um there's a lot of opportunity to see a better world it's often been um expressed as either or and not a hybrid of sorts of like, hey, we can kind of work together and figure things out like that. Are you, are you optimistic? Uh, well, that's a again, you 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 have very broad questions which allow me to go wherever I want, which is kind of nice. But am I optimistic? Um, we haven't really talked about you know, the extent of the crisis that we're in. And so I think... Well, let's get into that yeah, a little I, bit. I think I mean, to talk about optimism, we have to uh, we have to have a serious conversation about what we're facing. And and so when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the University of Winnipeg, we have an organization called the Prairie Climate Centre, 
Uh, it's located in the prairies, but we're looking nationally at the impacts of climate change on Canada. We built something called the Climate Atlas of Canada. So if you look at climateatlas.ca, uh, you can see the best available climate data for the country broken down by every province and territory. But more than that, you can get into the granularity of like literally places on the map, any community in the country, uh, any location in the country. And you can click in and look at these climate futures. And when you look at these high carbon uh, far futures, so in the kind of 2050s to 2080s, you know, when we look at the kind of heat waves that are coming, when we look at the number of plus 30 days that are coming, when we look at the changes in precipitation that are coming, when we look at the kind of extremely hot summers and the extremely cold or warmer winters, you know, we are fundamentally going to see a dramatic change in our country in our lifetimes, you and I, our kids, our grandkids, this is going to be a completely different world. And that different world is going to have dramatic uh, challenges with it unless we figure out how to kind of bend the curve down, how to bring the emissions down, but also how to prepare these future generations, how to bring people into a conversation that there is a problem, do it in a way that doesn't scare people, and to get people resourced with the tools, the datas, the data, the, the, the type of information that they require to start making informed decisions. Because, you know, in research and health, you know, informed choices are really, really important consideration. You don't just get your body operated on without knowing what's going on and having a choice around what to do about it. Well, I don't think society has been informed properly about the type of risks we're facing or the choices that we have. We're given this political rhetoric. We're being told, yeah, you can do this or you can't do this. There's always binaries. Um, and so... You know, again, without kind of getting too into the weeds here, you know, the best available science from the United Nations, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, like they are literally saying that this is an existential threat to human existence. There are these kind of obscure reports coming out of Pentagon-like departments of national defense in different countries of the world saying, you know, geopolitically, we have to get ready for a very seriously you know, challenged world where, you know, there's all kinds of climate change refugees, there's natural disasters, you know, sea level rises kind of taking over, you know, coastal communities. Some countries won't exist if they have low, you know, elevations in the sea, the Maldives, all of these things. Like when we think about all of that stuff happening, when we think about the possibility that world food supplies are going to be adversely affected as our population starts to increase, these are like a series of cascading crises that will literally be knocking at the doorstep of my kids and the people listening to this, their kids. And so this is real. And I am interested in being a kind of truth teller as I understand it. This is not hyperbole. This is not kind of extreme language just to kind of evoke, you know, listeners or, you know, people to kind of come to the ecological side of the table. That's not what this is. This is literally, you know, a conversation about the future of our species. And again, that sounds insane to kind of talk in that kind of hyperbole. You know, it's like, oh my God, it's so extreme. But that's actually what the science is saying. That's literally what they're saying. Scientists aren't known to be hyperbolic or poetic or, you know, dramatic. Well, and that's in some ways their, to, to, their, to their demise, to, to right? To the detriment yeah, it, 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 it of, the, hasn't, of the message. It hasn't, the message hasn't gotten out very clearly. And so we're trying to kind of communicate, this is serious. You know, we don't have to kind of think that we're necessarily, you know, facing the cliff, but we're very close. And so, you know, your question of hope and optimism is is one that's a tricky one because when you look out at all the indicators, 
you know, most people would say it's too late. Biodiversity crisis, climate crisis, political crisis, economic crisis. Whoa, this is just too much to figure out. But, you know, we're bonded right now through language, to humans talking to each other, the ingenious nature of the human mind, the ingenious nature of, of humanity. We have a lot of potential to solve problems. And, you know, you look at, you know, we've put people on the moon. We've done incredible things with our science and our technology. You know, you look at indigenous communities who have lived in balance with the natural world for thousands of years. And they're like our neighbors, you know, the the kind of pharaohs of Egypt have have kind of come and gone. These communities are still alive with us right now. And we have these resources. We have people who have the knowledge. We have the ability. Again, it's around connecting the dots, identifying the solutions, getting all of that on a common table, having the political will to say, you know what, we need to kind of figure out how to put this together into some sort of cohesive response. And then it's like rapid experimentation. Ex execution too. Well, it's yeah. it, it, but, but I don't think we know the answers. Mm. I think gotcha. we have a really good understanding of what some of the promising potential is. But given the kind of nature and scale of the crisis, I think that we have a lot of promising practices that if if resourced, if programs were put into place, it's it's like a matter of rapid experimentation to figure out what are the things that are going What's to gonna work and, and work at scale. Because we're talking about, you know, a country, if we if we keep it confined to Canada, you know, we're talking about a country, how do we, you know, when they talk about mitigation, okay, well, there's mitigation, we can bring down emissions in certain areas, but adaptation, when we have to kind of respond to the warming and the changes that are coming, no matter what, you know, how do we do that in all these different geographies, all these different cultural contexts, you know, well, we have to kind of experiment, we have to figure out what's going to work and what's going to glom and, and in a certain sense, it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what will stick. But we need to start that process, we need to actually figure out what are the strategies that are going to work and and figure out what's not going to work and then keep going from there and that that is that is an exciting time and in a sense that is what gives me hope is that we have the potential to actually understand the nature of the problem and respond to it and if we get to the point where we're doing that in a way that's effective and scaled to the nature of a country i think those countries of the world that do that they are going to be the leaders of the new economy they are going to be the leaders and people will be looking at these countries, these places, these communities, these individuals and saying, you know what? That's the real deal. That's the model. That's the model. Let's put money there. You're Let's right. invest in there. And so the faster that we do this as communities, as countries, the better off we will be in the long run. There's so many different sciences and disciplines and cultural mosaics that need to kind of work in harmony. That's a tall order. But I mean, you're kind of uniquely equipped to navigate that world a little bit because of how many experiences you've had in different cultures and sciences and disciplines. How do you make that a cohesive plan? Yeah. Well, it's tricky, right? You, and you see the exact opposite happening in the world right now. You Everyone's see this splintered. Kind of, this populism, you see this fracturing, you see people kind of getting into what they call these echo chambers. You know, you look at social media and it's crazy. You know, I had a uh, uh, I was at a friend's house who had a friend there who I had never met 
and he was taking me through his social media feed and he was like, you know, I'm seeing all this stuff that's telling me climate change isn't real, but you're like a climate guy. Like, what do you think of this? And he just scrolled on his phone through his social media feed. And I was astounded, you know, because again, these echo chambers that people get in they, these boxes that these technologies actually kind of parameterize ourselves into. And I was like, I, in my mind, I'm like, I never see that stuff yeah. because my echo chamber is very different. And so I'm hearing what I want to hear. This guy might be hearing what he wants to hear. We're having a conversation about, well, wait a second, we're hearing different things. And he's trying to figure out whether or not I have, you know, any ounce of credibility. And if I do, why is he only seeing that stuff? And it's this complex world that we live in, again, that I think social media is really important in because it's it's part of the problem in a real sense because it is kind of reinforcing these kinds of these hives, this kind of tribal society, you know, where literally we're kind of broken off into these these different kind of social media, you know, groupings and we can't find a cohesive conversation. And so I think at some level, you know, there, there has to be... Um, leadership on this right we have to have leadership where people are holding these kind of social media giants to task and you see that they're trying in certain contexts yeah. and failing the genie's out of the bottle well already, yeah though, but right? it, like... it's also amazing that these corporations can kind of literally control the way in which the public perceives the world without accountability that yeah. has to change yeah what you're being fed on a regular basis because of that quote-unquote algorithms of like here's what you want to see does it piss you off oh we're gonna piss you off every day then because you like yeah. that you know you're you're consuming that it's a bizarre world that we've allowed ourselves to be brought into yeah so there's a, there's some real challenges around all of that stuff but i think you know there is the possibility of alignment and you know some of the stuff that gives me a lot of hope and inspiration is you know people like greta thurnberg right like it's amazing you know the the just recently the kind of intense vitriol that has been thrown at this young girl right you know and and it's 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 really unfortunate but it also shows that people are scared of this new generation that is seeing the power they have the power but also they they're they're growing up in the in in this kind of world where these technologies are really kind of forcing them into these different kind of boxes and i think they're smart enough to realize that you know wait a second you know are, is this is this how we're going to have our generation framed? And some of these young people are not just kind of taking the bait and getting hooked on the technology. They're actually saying, wait a second, that's not actually how the world works. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing past that. And and I, I think that there's there's a lot of hope in that next generation. The trick is that they don't vote. And so, again, electoral politics and the kind of youth climate movement and all this stuff are, 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 are misaligned. And so, you know, I think it, it, it very quickly comes down to the kitchen table in families. Mm. It very quickly comes down to more cohesive kind of family units, more cohesive communities, people actually gathering. You know, you look at live bands, you know, iTunes comes up, all of a sudden digital media. Oh, my goodness, the world is over. We're not going to make it. Well, no. The biggest bands in the world making the most amount of money are the ones that are actually engaging in live performances with their communities and actually building experiences that are genuine. Yeah. And so I think the real kind of silver lining in all this is that if we are able to kind of figure out how to navigate the climate crisis, we're going to live healthier lives. Mm -hmm. We're going to live in active transportation. We're going to be walking. We're going to be biking. We're going to have good kind of public transit. We're going to be getting around better. We're going to be interacting in healthier ways. And we are going to have more genuine relationships with the land, with nature, with each other. 
And I think that is the kind of hope here. That is the opportunity is that we are going to be confronted with a reality that is going to be so kind of unbelievably uh, unfortunate and something that we do not want to kind of go down. We don't want to go down that path that people, I think, in this moment of crisis are going to realize that there is a much better way to interact with the world and with each other. And we will fight to protect that. And these young kids are doing that. And I think they're starting to convince their parents. I've had conversations with my parents recently that I never thought I would have. Um, and they're, you know, educated, you know, thoughtful, compassionate people who have been in the service of humanity, you know, for their whole lives. But they're starting to kind of see the tea leaves, you know, and they're starting to realize, you know what, the environment is different than when I was a kid. And so we're seeing this kind of whole of society shift, I think, because People are seeing it. 20 years ago, the climate science was kind of theoretical. Now it's a lived reality. Now we're actually living with the consequences of climate change. And so again, I think that's a motivator. I think that will help people to connect the dots. I think that will lead us to a path of action that will lead us to a society of resilience, which will get our kids in a good place. Yeah, there's a difference between thinking about something and actually feeling it or reading about something and actually feeling it. And, and once people actually feel the, the sort of tightness or the, the, you know, the pressure growing a little bit, it's going to hopefully catapult us a little bit forward. So I think you are optimistic. It seems like that's an optimistic approach. Um, do you think that there is like, do you think we're trending in the right direction? Do you think there is an appetite for knowledge now that there wasn't maybe five, 10 years ago before, like with people consuming long form podcasts or, or watching documentaries or what, what have you when it comes to the environment, do you think people want to help? They just don't really have the information or the knowledge or the education or the, or the wherewithal to, to start that yet? Yeah, I, I think part of it is we have to get off the couch like literally off the couch, you know, and we can't be these kind of armchair, you know, environmentalists or these kind of armchair, you know, social justice warriors. We, we have to be engaged. We have to be engaged citizens. And, you know, I think that means, you know, showing up to other people's meetings. I think that means, um, you know, figuring out how to connect to different groups that, that you're inspired by. Uh, I think that it means that, you know, we have to get out of those echo chambers and look for information in different places. Um, you know, our experience at the Prairie Climate Center is, has been a good one in that, you know, we're relatively new. Um, we've started to develop these, these public facing, uh, tools for communities to kind of learn about the challenges, but also figure out strategies to build that kind of resilient future. And we are seeing a wicked uptick in the usage of the content that we are making. We are seeing people taking it very seriously. And so, you know, from our own kind of personal experience as an organization, as a group that develops science and data and technology and media and all of these things that we've been talking about today, people are hungry for it. And I think, again, people are hungry for authentic content. They are hungry for authentic experiences. And so as we do this work, uh, as people are listening to this stuff, you know, that authenticity is something that, that, that will carry the day. And I think if you speak from your heart, people will hear you. If you develop content, you know, that is really, you know, well thought out and designed to, to, to better people's lives, 
people will hear it. They will see it. They will engage with it. And that, that has been our experience. And so I think that, you know, the, the opportunity for people to kind of find that material, it's a sea of content mm -hmm. out there. And there's lots of, again, we talked about the attention economy mm -hmm. where people are trying to grab your eyeballs and steer you to the next ad or the next political message to kind of frame your decision when you get to a vote. You know, we are living in that society. And I think people just need to be critical. They need to think critically. They need to kind of be aware that people are trying to steer our minds. It is literally a battle for our brains and not to just give that away. Yeah. A lot of, uh, a great quote that I've heard is if, if you're using a product and it's free, then you're the product. So be aware of that. Like you are the thing that's being sold and you're the thing that's being bought. So don't just think that, Oh, Facebook's free or Twitter's free or Reddit's free. You are the product that's being commodified in that situation. So be aware of that and understand where that is like where that's leading our society. You know, at the end of our time together, I ask every one of our guests seven quick questions. Uh, I don't want you to think about it too much, but uh, we call it just because. And uh, are you okay to do that for us? Sure. Okay, great. Question one. What's the very first cause you actually remember caring about? The environment. From day one? Yeah. I, I, it, like I said, it's been there for a long time. Uh, and that's partly the exposure to the natural world. But... It's also the political awakening around that experience. And mm -hmm. so again, I, I spent a lot of time outside when I was a kid, I was engaged, but then it was understanding that, wait a second, we can't take this for granted. Wait a second, you know, there are threats to the natural world and to our sustainability, you know, interaction with it. And so it, it was always kind of there, but it, it really did kind of start to form in high school, a world issues class, riding the bike to California, getting to university. It's like, whoa. And again, those are in some ways privileged experiences um, that I'm very thankful for and have tried to you know, use that for good. For sure. You have a very unique path. Do you, do you think, this is an aside, but do you think politics is the way to affect the most change or is it media like what's the what's the role that you could be in that would affect the most change globally i think that everybody no matter what position they're in has the ability to affect change mm. i don't think it's one person i think it's everybody collectively aligning towards common goals and again that 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 is beyond political stripes the the you know people might be listening and they're like oh this guy's some sort of enviro you know i don't i don't i'm not into this but the thing is i work with farmers i'm super interested in working with business people i think that there are these weird kind of networks of collaborations that we have yet to tap mm. and to me that's again where the hope is in that there are a lot of people out there you know, looking at the world and going, wait a second, is this really our kind of future? Is this really the destiny that we have? And I think it's just a matter of time before these business leaders step out of the kind of conventional way of doing business, you know, the heads of hospitals and CEOs, you know, there, there's all kinds of networks that will start to be leveraged because people realize that it has to get done. And so I, I don't think it's a single person that's going to change the world. I think it's that collectivity of individuals that kind of start to realize that we need to be moving in a different direction. And then at every scale, at every interaction, whether you go to the post office or, you know, you go to the grocery store, you know, people are helping to kind of move the world in the right way. And 
I think that's when we start to kind of get that groundswell and we'll start to see that true transformation because, again, it, it can't be a special interest group. It can't be a cause. You know, I know we're getting into the causes, right? It can't be a cause that carries the day. It, it has, has to be to, fundamental. It, well, it, it has because it, it, my cause is going to be different than someone else's cause. And all of a sudden, then we're back into these echo chambers. And I think, mm. you know, the, 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 the potential that people realize that our experience as human beings will fundamentally change unless we collaborate and cooperate to build a more kind of safe future um, then then you know once that happens you you look at the Amazon rainforest for example I think this is a perfect example mm-hmm. you know we've got an extremely right-wing government in Brazil you know they get into power they start to kind of deregulate they start to send the soft signals that it's uh, it's okay to kind of cringe on you know the the rainforest it's okay to kind of move in there and all of a sudden the stuff starts to take off and the world leaders are saying, wait a second, this cannot happen. The lungs of the planet cannot go down on our watch. And all of a sudden, you know, a lot of people that wouldn't be speaking out on behalf of the environment, on behalf of, you know, environmental protection at the expense of the economy are like boldly, you know, saying this cannot continue. And I think as we face more of those kind of critical moments, there will be people coming out of the woodwork that we would not think coming out of the woodwork, saying things we would not think they would be saying because we have to. Um, you know, Alan Rock and Lloyd Axworthy wrote an article in the Globe Mail recently about, you know, how when there's genocide in a country, political kind of intervention is a necessity. We haven't gotten to the point where ecocide in a country like the burning of the Amazon rainforest warrants political intervention at the international scale, but they were opening the door. They were saying, wait a second, if we are literally going to compromise the like oxygen producing ecosystems of the world for the sake of political and economic gain in a country, that is a world issue that world leaders can potentially rally around for a political intervention. And they were like seriously talking about going into Brazil and stopping the wildfires. And so we are, that is a very different conversation. That has, I've never had that. I, I, and I study this stuff. I've never seen that before where they came out and said, you know what? We might need to think differently and act differently than we've ever acted before, given the scale of the crisis. And so, again, I think as this stuff unfolds, we will see different kinds of processes and different kinds of people coming out of the woodwork and saying, you know what? Enough's enough. And when that starts to happen in enough areas, I think we will get to a transformative moment. We just need to be a global community, not just our own little packets of humanity everywhere. Question two, if money, politics, and logistics were no issue at all, what's the first thing you would do to help the environment? If you're a uh, blank check or a genie or something. Well, you I, 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 you know, again, I think it's, 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 it's not the environment. I would, I would almost start with poverty. Mm. You know, I would, I would start to look at, um, figuring out how to support, uh, people who need, uh, resources, you know, when you start to look at, you know, some of these things where environmental decline, you know, again, the Amazon, when they're burning down the forest, it's, some of it is like big corporate, like, you know, palm production and all of this stuff. Other things are like people trying to eke out an existence to get the money that they need and burning down the forest is, you know, the logical step for their family to survive. Mm -hmm. And we're in a situation where it's like, wait a second, how does that make any sense? Well, it, it makes sense when there's poverty in the world. It makes sense when people right. don't have alternative choices. I think that, you know, if we start to address these kind of systemic issues in society, 
society around injustice and economic injustices, a lot of the le playing field gets leveled in a way where I think that um, we can amplify certain voices and we can kind of start to have a, a more balanced conversation. Uh, and so I, I, w I would say these things are all interlinked um, and poverty reduction is a form of uh, creating a, a better kind of environment. And, and I think that as we kind of find balance across these social and environmental indicators, that would be a good place to start. Yeah, that's a great perspective for sure. Question three, what's the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the cause? Uh, well, you know, in the case of climate change, there's still denial. Um, and it's unfortunate that we have to continue to talk about this. Um, but you know, the, the thing we we're talking about Greta Thunberg, right? There's, there's papers that have started to come out looking at the, the, the kind of how denial operates and it's often privileged white men, you know, that don't want to see their worldview rocked. They don't want to see their privilege rocked. They've been living pretty good for the past few hundred years, right? Why Why would we want to change it? And, and I, I'm a tall white guy, right? <laughs> so like, I just, so, you know, people can put this in context, but the 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 idea that that we're rocking certain people's boats by talking about a different kind of world, um, well, these people are digging in their heels. And they're saying, no, we, we don't no. We're, we're on the top of the, the pile. And why would we change that? Well, climate change, you know, as people have talked about, is, is, is potentially the great equalizer, you know, and it could redistribute, you know, resources. It could change the way people live. And that for some people are very threatening. And so they, they box it away and they're like, it doesn't exist. And so I think addressing that in a thoughtful way is really important because people are reacting probably for real reasons. That's a real reaction. And we can't dismiss that. We can't say, oh, you're a moron, you know, just because you're privileged, get off your privilege and get out of here. We have to engage people. We have to have a conversation. We have to say, you know, okay, well, you know, if you're threatened, let's talk about what that threat means to you. Let's have a conversation about it. And is there a way for you to kind of continue with your life in a way that makes sense to you and you feel good about while also not, you know, denying the reality that climate change is going to potentially, you know, destroy small island nation states and these people will have nowhere to go. You know, how do we have a conversation so that everybody understands that there are real consequences and that we can't just be complacent? And so I think confronting that denialism is is one of the biggest challenges, but it, it's only part of the equation. That's the social and political dimension of it. The the real challenge is the the, the climate change that is coming. Mm -hmm. The impacts that will be coming are the greatest challenge, but therein lies the silver lining. Again, as those challenges, as those impacts start to kind of roll forward, people will realize we cannot delay any longer. Yeah. We have to act. Question four. What is the time in your life where you had to pivot because a plan wasn't working out how you thought it would? Every day. <laughs> really? I guess you have, there's so many elements going well, on. Every day. You know, the, this is this is the plasticity. This is the adaptation. This is the mm. this is the kind of being nimble, you know, that, that, that is required. We have to understand that the way in which we thought things worked 
and works right now is likely not the way it will work in the future. Um, and that that is the systems change part of this, right? Is that, you know, if we continue to build buildings the way that we're building buildings, if we continue to build roads the way that we're building roads, if we continue to, you know, build our cottages on oceanfront properties, all of that stuff is no longer the way in which we need to be conceiving of the world and actually building in the world. And so, you know, that that is the the kind of the lesson here is that we 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 have to be adaptable. We have to think differently about the future. And so, you know, I, I'm like a I'm I'm like organized chaos. You know, I'm I'm going a million miles an hour and things are changing and we're, you know, it, 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 I don't sail, but I would imagine it would be like that, right? Is that you're on a course, but the wind changes and you gotta figure out how to readjust and get back in the kind of trajectory that you wanna be and not knowing if it will be the exact one that you've planned for. And, you know, again, hopefully to the sailors out there, that made sense. But, uh, you know, in my mind, it does, right? We, we're setting course for, for, for a certain direction. You know, we don't know what's coming at us. We're going to kind of have to change and tack and, 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 and adjust, but we, we want to go that way. And, and I think that we can set our sights on a different kind of future. We can point, you know, our indicators and our, our, our resources in a certain way, but ultimately we'll get blown off course and we're going to have to change. We're going to have to adjust and figuring out how to like actually embed that in the way in which we function as individuals, communities, and, you know, larger countries of the world, you know, that's, that's a really kind of exciting space right it's very different and and there are people working on this you know intellectually and bureaucratically and you know how this stuff would operate um but uh, you know again i i try to live that and and so i'm i'm always constantly you know my plan is never what i think it is but i'm looking far enough forward that those the when when plans don't work we're still kind of going in the direction we always thought we would be adaptability is yeah. key question five what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given the best piece of advice I've ever been given. Huh. That's a tricky one. Uh, Actually, probably. Well, I didn't ask you about David Suzuki. You spent a lot of time with him. Was there any sort of nuggets of wisdom that he passed along to you that, I mean, go outside with well, your kids you know, and he, stuff? Well, you know, he's talked a lot about just being mindful of family. Mm. You know, the impact that this work has, you know, we get passionate about this. You know, a lot of people who do the work that I do, you know, we feel like we're in a sense fighting for our lives. Um, but you don't want that to overshadow the life that you're actually living. Mm. And, you know, I got kids and I try to really be mindful of, you know, spending time with them. And, you know, if I spend my whole life fighting for their future, but I don't spend any time with them then I obviously haven't invested in the right places. And so I think that's a really critical one. And and the other one is, I think, kind of listening with your heart. Um, you know, I'm uh, I'm trained as an intellectual, right? I'm a, I'm a prof. I, I've spent, you know, more time in university than I like to, you know, think about. Um, and that trains you to really kind of analyze things with your brain and, and kind of go at it with your mind. But there is a lack of balance when you do that. And so again, thinking through your heart, thinking through the person, thinking through the experience of being there and doing these things as opposed to just kind of intellectualizing them. And, and again, that, that, that ripples through my work. We're interested, you know, in as much the kind of data and concepts of climate change and other environmental issues that we engage with. But then, you know, when we're making films, we often talk about how the primary approach to filmmaking is to create empathy. 
is to literally have people kind of see through another person's lens to kind of think through what it would be like to be that person. And so if that means you're a business leader and a CEO of an oil and gas company and you're there and you have to kind of, you know, make a tough decision about the environment, well, we should think about what it's like to be that person. You know, they're going to stand up because their kids, you know, told them to, well, they could get fired. And that's a real reality. And to me, that's like, that's interesting. Okay, what is it like for that person to wake up in the morning? Conversely, what is it, you know, like for, you know, the environmentalists of the world to wake up in the morning? And how do those different lived realities uh, kind of play out? And how do we understand each other? How do we empathize with each other? Because if we find empathy in this world, we have the ability to actually figure this out. Because then we're looking out for each other. And so for me, that's a, that's a really kind of key piece in all this. It's the human stories that are going to change people's minds. I think so. Yeah, for sure. Question six, what advice would you give your 10 year old self if you could talk to him right now? My 10 year old self. Oh, I don't know if I would give myself advice. That's like Marty McFly, man. We're like playing with back to the future. Yeah. You're going to change the course of history. Like I, I think that one thing I want to be really careful about, and again, we work with these climate futures. We have climatologists that we work with. I'm not a climatologist, but we work really closely on our team. There's climatologists. When we talk about these climate futures, that is what the best available science says the future might be like, but that is not the future. We can change the future. We can, we can change the emission trajectories. We can change the way in which we kind of interact with each other. We can build these programs that we've been talking about. And so I think that we want to be open to the possibility that the future can be whatever we define it as. Who knows what new technology is going to get inve- invented in the next so 10 years? I don't want to come back and talk to myself when I'm 10 because I think that would that that that's that that that's a, not a reflection of of the the potential of the future to be uh, what we imagine it to be not what some future self comes back and tells us what it is and so that's the trickiness with science right is that it's kind of this 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 projection of the future that people take as gospel or truth and yes there is a lot of merit in that that that's in many ways the best way of knowing in terms of understanding what kind of reality we could face in the future but that is inspiration to potentially change what we're doing now so that we don't hit the worst kind of, you know, consequences of climate change. And so, you know, the future is this interesting thing. And, and, and I think it's one of the only things, it's one of the main things that differentiates us from other species. We can actually conceive of the future. And it's something we need to seriously take stock of because we can do it. We're one of the few, if not the only species in the world that can think forward in time like that. And that means that we can prepare for that future. And it also means we can imagine a different future that isn't some sort of inhospitable hot earth. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that's an interesting question, but I would prefer to allow the kind of creativity and calmness of my 10 year old self to kind of continue on the trajectory and learn by doing and learn by experiencing and learn through community without that intervention of Marty McFly coming back to tell me about what it's like. Great answer. Last question. Thank you for doing this. This is awesome. It's probably the hardest one, but here we go. Uh, What do you want to be remembered for? I'm not sure I'll live up to this, but I think kindness 
I think being kind is a rare commodity these days. I think we're quick to um, pounce on each other. You know, again, talking about these social media landscapes and all of this stuff, it's so easy to kind of attack each other. And I'm I'm not particularly good at this. I'm I'm feisty. Like I get in there and I scrap around these things. I'll challenge people and I'll challenge myself to be better. And at the same time, I think at the end of the day, I think it's it's a it's an exercise in kindness. I think that you know if we can find how to be gentle with each other, if we can find how to kind of see the best in each other, even if we disagree, uh, that empathy that will help again to build a more cohesive society that will help us to actually listen to each other which is probably one of the most important things is that we're never actually listening to each other just waiting for your turn to talk yeah and and so it's a it's a really important thing because i think if we're kind all of those other things start to kind of come into focus all of those other things start to function in a way where that enterprise of being human can be more rich and more connected to other people in a way that allows us to actually perhaps see the world in a common light that allows us to actually do something that might be considered useful as a legacy as as individuals but also as people walking on the earth dr ian moreau moreau thank you this was awesome appreciate your time thanks for being on the podcast uh, good luck with the fight and we'll see you out there on the front lines cheers thank you again to dr ian moreau for speaking with us on today's episode as you may have noticed this was our longest podcast to date and um i could have talked with ian for probably another hour I only got through about half the questions I planned on asking him, so it's pretty telling how vast his his knowledge is on all these different topics, and it's all kind of interconnected. You know, it's not just one aspect that we have to focus on; it's everything from how the, how we design our cities, how we teach our kids, and how we uh, govern ourselves. Yeah. If you're interested in learning a little bit more, uh, climateatlas.ca is one of the coolest and most interactive resources that Ian and his team have made available. Uh, It's very valuable information and there's so many different stories that Ian's captured and collected and uh, a lot of data and interesting things to see. So again, check out climateatlas.ca. It's very interesting stuff, especially if you're from Canada. If you're interested in learning more about climate change in general, this week's episode of Because Radio on 93.7 CJNU is a good one too. If you go to becauseradio.ca, that's because radio, all one word, .ca, there's uh, a couple great interviews from some experts and from ad- some advocates uh, about climate change. So becauseradio.ca. All music on the Because and Effect podcast was composed and produced by Trenton Burton. You can find out more of his music at trentonburton.com. Special thank you to Robert Zirk, Sonny Promolo, and Jerry, Jeremy Morantz for additional assistance on the podcast this week. Much appreciated, boys. Thank you for all your help. And you can follow the Winnipeg Foundation on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching at WPGFDN on all the socials. And you can follow me at Nolan Bicknell as well. Because in Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. I'm Nolan Bicknell signing off for this week. We'll see you next week. Thank you very much for listening. And remember, the only one who never makes mistakes is the one who does nothing.